If no one sheds light on what is being done in the darkness, it will never stop. One in three girls and one in six boys are sexually abused and told to hush. Breaking the silence is the first step to healing. Healing is a lifelong journey. Find your voice. Your story matters. Pain put me into hiding. Purpose called me out. May the silence be broken. Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien with Nicole Braddock Bromley. We're so glad you're here to listen in to the conversation we recently had with Nicole's good friend, Jody Ploche, an outspoken male survivor of child abduction and sexual abuse. Hello? What are you doing? I'm driving, so give me a minute to find a place to park. Okay. Let me hear that Louisiana twang. You think? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. I'm you ready. ready? Okay. Um, I don't know. Have you heard any of my podcast yet? Not yet. Jerk. Someone didn't send me a link. Oh, please. All right. I'll send it <laughs> forthcoming. Hey, so you, but you probably know, um, I do it with my friend, Mary. I, I, I do know you had a, a uh, co-host. Yeah, so she's with us. Hello, Mary. Hi. I'm just sitting here like a little fly on the wall, cracking up at you, too. (laughs) I've told her some stories, Jody. Anyways, okay. Well, let's get started. You're being recorded. So, okay. Do you edit this? Yeah. Yes. It's not live. Okay. So, we'll probably talk for a half hour. If I say something stupid, take it out. Absolutely, for no. a small fee. Those are the only pieces we keep in. <laughs> All right, Jody. So, Jody, you and I have been friends for years and years. You and I have actually been friends since I started speaking publicly. I met you in Pennsylvania, and um, you were an advocate there. And I was so, in a weird way, excited to meet a male survivor of sexual abuse who was outspoken like you were and just courageous enough to share your own story in front of crowds like I was. And um, so I was just hoping to have you on today, Jody, just to share a little bit more of your story with our listeners. I think it's I think sexual abuse is something that's so hard to talk about in general for all of us. But personally, my belief is it's even harder for a guy to talk about. And so first of all, I'm really proud of you. And I know your story has been heard Um, on numbers of TV shows and um, on ESPN. Your whole story was aired recently. What was that show, the the clip on for ESPN? It was uh, ESPN's E60. Yeah. And and it's on YouTube. You can can go watch it or you can link it. But, uh, yeah, that that actually was kind of a funny story how that came about. Um, I want to get back to how we met and what I was doing in Pennsylvania and how I got there, but – I was following the Jerry Sandusky trial through Rick Riley on Twitter. Mm. And that's how I'd get my news updates about what was going on. Cause that's, you know, Penn state, I was in Pennsylvania. And then all of a sudden one day, Rick Riley said on Twitter that if I uh, get, uh, get to a hundred thousand followers, I'll write a story on one of my followers. Mm. What's your story? So in 140 characters, I was like, kidnapped, <laughs> sexually molested, my father shot and killed kidnapper. So I get an email a couple of days later yeah. saying, okay, tell me more. Well, finally, after about a month, I get an email saying, Rick, 
shows you he wants to talk to you at like 8.30 in the morning tomorrow. I said, all right, great. Well, Rick initially said that the article would be like on his website or his blog post. Well, once he got the whole story, he decided, or he pitched, I guess, to ESPN. So it was on the very front cover of ESPN.com wow. the next day after Jerry Sandusky was found guilty. Wow. And basically his article was saying that, you know, Jerry Sandusky was found guilty, but he may have gotten lucky because this is what happened to another child molester. Mm. Um, you know, he got shot and killed. And eventually my dad, uh, it was, it was filmed on TV. Mm-hmm. Uh, the news cameras were right in front of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually after a year and a half, two years, my dad pled no contest to manslaughter and he got sentenced to, I think, five years probation and 300 hours community service. Amazing. I mean, that's unheard of. But backtrack a little bit. I mean, so your dad, I mean, he shot and killed your abuser right on live television. But backtrack a little bit before that, you know, this was your karate teacher. Okay. Yeah, I was in fifth grade. And I remember I got this flyer to take karate. Well, I had no interest in taking karate. So I balled it up and I threw it in the trash can before I walked out of the classroom. Well, my little brother was like in second or third grade, so he also got the same flyer. Well, he brought that home and gave it to my mother. Well, I was already playing football, basketball, baseball, and soccer. So my plate was full. Well, she decided that she, for my little brother, didn't he didn't play anything to get him involved in an extracurricular activity. She would put us all in karate. It was supposed to be like 10 sessions. So we'd go take our first session. Everything goes fine. We go take our second session. The teacher never shows back up. So the original teacher, like, fled, like, just took the money and ran. Well, a couple months later, she gets a phone call from another karate teacher in town, Jeff Doucette. um, That's the guy that eventually sexually abused, kidnapped, and got shot. Um, We started taking karate with him. Well, after a few lessons, he was like, hey, look, you know, we fight in competitive tournaments, you know, like in a karate kid. This was before the Karate Kid came out. I'm just saying it was like like those tournaments. And he's like, we got a fighting team. You know, before the event, we usually go to the movies and, you know, we have a good time. You know, I'd like to invite y'all to come with us. And so my mother was, you know, hesitant. She actually called her brother who worked for the sheriff's department and said, you know, to have a do a background check on him to make sure that, you know, he was safe to go with. And uh, my uncle either never did it or, you know, did it and made up a story but anyway my uncle said nah he's fine uh, no problems so mm-hmm. we go see this karate movie called they call me bruce and after that we started fighting in tournaments we traveled to houston after the tournaments we go to astroworld mm-hmm. and i would say after several months is when jeff started to quote unquote test my boundaries mm-hmm. and it started with like stretching he's like all right you know you gotta have you have a kick your leg up and you got to be able to do a split. And so he would, mm. you know, he would work with a stretching, which is basically able to get, you know, in close to us and touch us and kind of normalize that. And mm-hmm. then, and then I remember the next thing I remember was, uh, he, he, one day we were coming home from karate practice and, and, you know, Jeff told the parents, you know, Hey, I'll bring the kids back. He had this, you know, 280 ZX and his car, well, it was his friend's car, but you know, he was driving it and we thought it was awesome. And he would, uh, let us drive. He would he'd stick shift, so he'd set us on his lap, and he would work the pedals and the shift, and we would drive. And after a couple of driving sessions, he started putting his hands in my lap, and I kind of was like, whoa, wait, what? and then he'd move them. But that was just his way of testing my boundaries and sure. gradually working his way to where, yeah. you know, 
The grooming I mean, process. Just, oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's almost like he, he had a handbook. And mm. I, I saw one of Jerry Sandusky's victims on one of the new shows. And, you know, he mentioned how Sandusky would let him drive the car and put his hands in his lap. It was mm. the same thing. Yeah. Yep. My stepdad did that same exact thing, Jody. It's, I think it is really common because if it was just dramatic and right, you know, out of the gates doing something crazy all the way to the extreme of boundaries, we probably would have told. You know, we would have known right. that it was wrong, but it's the slow, gradual process, like you're talking about, that creates this, you know, gray area and confusion for a kid. And, and a lot of times, and this is why I hate ticklers, um, a lot of times, like let's say you're tickle, uh, you know, a molester's tickling a child and grabs their private parts to test their boundaries, and the kid's like, what are you doing? You just touched my private parts. They can go, oh, it was an accident. It was a joke. And then they just move on to another kid. Mm. So that, that's that, why they do it gradually, because they got a lot invested. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's why the, once they do finally get a child that's a compliant victim, that they'll be with that child, you know, two, three years, or until that child grows out of the mm. prepubescent stage and goes into puberty, then they'll you know, basically trade them in for what they, what they like. Mm, that's so sick. So did you, you know, growing up, and I know you're very outspoken about this, so I know I can go there with some hard questions, but did you then later in life look back and have any shame about like your responses and, or, or, you know, wishing that you had responded in a different way, feeling guilt for that? You know, none of this is your fault and you didn't deserve it. No child should ever go through this. But is there a part of you that struggled with that? later and if so how did you deal with that okay the answer is no and i'm going to tell you why mm -hmm. because in like 1980 they had a tv show that came on called a fallen angel or fallen angel and my mother made us watch it and she watched it with us and it was about a guy who lured these kids into child porn so when jeff started touching me and i, I mean when i knew it wasn't you know uh, a grooming process when he was actually right. you know rubbing me mm. I was thinking to myself, this is one of those crazy people my mother told me about. And, I mean, I knew I should tell, but I didn't know how to because I was still only 10 years old when it started. Yeah. And, I mean, that's a lot of responsibility that you put on kids when you say, okay, well, you know, you need to tell mommy and daddy if anyone ever touched you. No, mommy and daddy, you need to be more aware of who your parents are hanging around. You take that responsibility. Don't put it on an 8-year-old. That's right. So, and another thing that gets uh, – when, when people start blaming themselves or feeling guilty is one of the unspoken things about sexual abuse that people don't like to talk about. I guess fortunately for me, because my dad shot him, it was in the news and it was out in the open. So I never could like keep it a secret or, you know, wait till I was 25 and then have kids. And then all of a sudden it hit me and triggered. But a lot of times young children don't know what's happening to them is wrong until they get older and think about it. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they basically cause them cognitive dissonance is the fact that it's a sexual act, and at some points it's pleasurable. Mm -hmm. And that's where the guilt and the shame comes from. But you know what? It's a physiological response. Right. You know, Jeff performing oral sex on me would, you know, feel good. But sure. I, never, I never, like, initiated or wanted it, but, I mean... It, I didn't know why he wanted to do it in the first place until he did it. Then I was like, whoa. But my body responded the way a human body responds. Right. But luckily for me, I, I never internalized mm. that and felt guilt about that because yeah. I had known beforehand you knew, that Jeff was this bad Yeah, person. you knew it was him that was putting this on you. Right. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think I, I, you know, I hear a lot of survivors that say, well, I wish I had 
said something or done something differently so that it didn't continue. So, you know, that's why I asked that question, but I am so glad that you had that sort of understanding growing up because I think that saved you from a lot of the shame that a lot of survivors really do struggle with. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. How, what do you think about, you know, when it comes to being a male survivor, you know, do you think that there's certain hurdles that you have to overcome in addition to just being a survivor, being a guy? You know, I think there are uh, different things. Does it affect a man differently as he goes through his healing than a woman? I don't know. But what I can say is one of the things that I've experienced, my experience, is the, I, I don't, I'm not calling these people ignorant, but the ignorance of people thinking that, oh, I was molested by a man, then it's going to make me gay. Yeah. So one of the questions that, uh, you know, people have asked about me my whole life is, you know, are you gay or they're not asking me, they're asking other people, is he gay? Wow, um, really? You know, the fact that I'm 45 and single uh, and talk baby talk to my cat all day long doesn't help. <laughs> but, you know, I was straight before Jeff molested me and I was straight after Jeff molested me. Uh-huh. Yeah. I tell people, I, I tell people all the time when they, they question, I said, look, I said, I know for a fact. I said, Jeff made me perform a homosexual act and I didn't like it. So I know I'm not gay. Wow. Do you think there's anything else that you feel like would be different for, or maybe not just for you, but for other guys you've met, you know, in the past few years as an advocate, you know, guys versus girls and their healing process? Do you see any differences? I imagine there's always, you know, I mean, there's differences in, uh, you know, I mean, rape is rape, but if you're raped by a stranger versus raped by someone you know and trust, there's differences in the healing process. Yeah. Somebody raped by a stranger, they're going to have issues with security. Somebody who's raped by a friend is going to have issues with trust. So, you know, everyone heals differently and heals in different ways. I mean, there are uh, certain things that help. Like I said, my mother basically was my support system. I was able to talk to her, uh, and I, I, I did go to a professional psychologist, psychologist mm -hmm. I think it was, um, for maybe six months because they made me. They uh -huh. said that you, you have to go for the court. They had to show the court that, you know, I had gotten treatment. But the, the psychologist or psychiatrist, whichever one, told my mother after about six months, like, he doesn't need to be here. He's, he's fine. Oh, wow. That's so similar to mine, too. And did you end up going later, or do you feel like you had a good support around you to a point where you didn't no, need that? I, I dealt with it then, and uh -huh. I've never looked back upon it. But the one thing that really changed my life, to make me want to be an advocate and, and speak out is when I was 18 years old, we got contacted by a producer from the Geraldo Rivera talk show that wanted me and my father to come on and uh, talk about our case. Mm. And so I was like, hey, free trip to New York City. And so I went and did the show. Well, a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call from one of the detectives at the sheriff's department who worked on my case. And he called me up and he said, look, I want you to notice this is going to be in the papers tomorrow. He said, we arrested this pastor who were molesting these two boys, and one of the kids, he uh, he came forward after seeing you on the Geraldo show. Wow. And, yeah, that's when I realized, wow, you know, I can make a difference. I can take something bad and use it for good. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's really powerful. And, and I'm so proud of you. I mean, for you to come out with your story, wow. and it's just amazing. It, anyone that I tell your story to, they're just like, their jaws hit the floor. You know, being a going through that grooming process and being raped by your karate teacher who everyone in your town loves 
then being abducted and taken to another state. I mean, and then of course, when when he had taken you to California, how how did you end up getting found? I I think he basically gave up. Um, we were running out of money, um, and he actually had mentioned something like you hear about the human tra- trafficking now. Um, he off he he actually asked me, you know, do you think it would be possible if I if I contacted somebody um, and maybe like th- they could pay me so mm. they could be relieved? I mean, he he was that he had suggested exactly. it at that point. Wow, and I, I was like I was like I didn't know that, Jody. Wow. Well, yeah, I was saying a lot of times people want to talk about the shooting, but yeah, I mean, he had actually got to that point, and I was like, absolutely not. Mm. And then he called my mother. And he was making these demands, saying that he was in New York and that she needed to meet him there. But we were in we were in Anaheim, California, and he called Colette. Well, I think actually I made the phone call. He told me to call my mother because uh, they had been fighting or something. But they, my mother was had the police listening in. They were all at the house recording all the phone conversations. Mm-hmm. And my mother asked. He called Colette. Now, if you're kidnapping somebody, you do not. Let me just give you tips. Don't call Colette. <laughs> So he called, we called Collect, and they asked for, my mother asked for time and charges. For those people who were uh, of this younger generation, um, that's when you would make a long-distance phone call, um, <laughs> and the other person who was receiving the phone call paid for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and after the call was over with, the operator came back on and told him, you know, it was a 15-minute call, and it would be like $300. So... That was what time and charges were. Well, whenever the operator came back to give my mother the time and the charges, the detective got on the phone and said, look, this is an active kidnapping investigation. We need to know the exact room, the exact town that that phone call came from. Mm. And so that's how they were able to find out where we were. Wow. Amazing. And then from that point, flew you guys back. And, yeah, you were, you know, flown back to your family and then – he, well, Jeff, was flown back in handcuffs. Well, first things first, like, so all of a sudden, I'm sitting on the bed while I think I was watching one day at a time. Jeff was to my right on the phone where the desk was, where the phone would be, and I heard, a, a like, a tap on the door and, yeah. like, a key just jiggling, and then all of a sudden, it, it seemed like 50 cops come busting in the room, mm-hmm. guns pointed at me, guns pointed at him. They grabbed me, they take me out the room. Mm-hmm. And so they're asking me questions. My hair had been dyed black, and I'm shivering because I was scared. And one of the uh, police officers said, are, are you cold? I said, no. They said, well, you're shivering. I said, yeah, because I'm scared. And they said, well, no, you're safe. I said, well, I know I'm safe now, but y'all just busted in there and, and had guns pointed at me. Then I went to the police station. No. Yeah, first place I went was to the police station, and they questioned me probably for an hour. And you know, I tried to tell mainly, mostly the truth, but I just denied that he ever touched me. Mm-hmm. Then they took me to the hospital, and this is where I knew Jeff was going to get busted. Okay, so the, I, I tell people they gave me a complete physical exam. Mm-hmm. Um, it's as complete as you can get, and so I knew that the evidence was going to be there. Mm-hmm. So they take me that morning to, like, some some abused child shelter home or, you know, neglected kid place, and I remember spending the day there, uh, I think I watched Rocky Three on movies, and they all had schools, so I was kind of isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, I spent that day there, and then it was like a, a 110 flight out of LAX where I flew from Los Angeles to New Orleans, and that was March 1st, 1984. It wasn't until March 16th, 1984, 
that Jeff was brought back. So he was brought back two weeks later. But a week before that is when my mother told me, she said, I got a call from Mike Burnett. That's the sheriff guy. He wants to come over and talk to me. And now I'm thinking in the back of my head, uh-oh, he's got the hospital report. Mm. So I'm thinking I got to come clean. So the next day, my mother's at the bus stop waiting to pick us up, and she tells the other kids, go play, Jody, come with me. So now I'm almost 100% certain, confirmed that this is what's going to happen. So she sits me down in the the den, and she says, Mike Burnett came over today, and he told me that the hospital report, the rape report, came back positive. And I tried to play stupid. I was like, what does that mean? (laughs) She's like, that means Jeff fooled with you. And I was like, yeah, he did. And so that's kind of how that broke. Well, same day, same meeting, Mike Burnett was there with my mother and my dad, and he told my parents what had happened. And, you know, of course, they started crying. And Daddy said, I'm going to kill the MF. Mm. And Mike was like, okay, Gary, I know you're upset. And so, like, the night before, when Mike Burnett flew off to California, he's the one on the tape. If you see the tape, you hear a guy go, why, Gary, why? And he runs and he grabs my dad. That's Mike Burnett. So he goes out to California to get Jeff and bring him back. And uh, my mother was like, Mike, I'm worried about Gary. And Mike made the comment. He said, look, June, I've been protecting prisoners way longer than Gary decided to become an assassin. And so that was kind of his comment to my mother. Well, Mm. on the video, Mike's out front looking for my dad or looking for one of Jeff's brothers or someone, another kid's parents that he may have fooled with. And Mike waves them so they could come on. And in the video, like Jeff and Bud Connors was the guy walking next to him who also worked for the sheriff's department. They're looking at the people that had kind of gathered behind the camera to see if they were looking for anybody or, you know, that might harm them. And they never noticed the guy standing to the right because the wall was kind of indented. You can't really tell. And it was about 10 pay phones. And so my dad had his head buried in the phone. He had a hat and sunglasses. And he used the camera lights. He told me he used the camera lights to know when Jeff got parallel. So he was watching out the side of his glasses. Wow. So once he disappeared behind him, he used those camera lights. So he knew when the camera was parallel to where he was. And he just turned and from point blank rage shot, shot him once right behind the ear. Wow. He was dead before he hit the ground. Wow. He was pronounced dead the next day because they put him on life support. And, but no, I mean, he, he didn't have time to close his eyes. Oh my goodness. I got a video of the, the full unedited and I like when they turn him over his eyes are still open oh my goodness wow yeah it's very graphic and your dad got one night in jail uh, I think he couldn't post bond till Monday morning because it was Friday night when he did it so I think it was like two nights in jail mm-hmm. or three nights in jail Amazing. And that's it wow for people who've been abused and want to see justice was there any part of you that was angry with your dad because you wanted to confront Jeff about abusing you or did you feel almost a release knowing that he was gone and your dad took care of the situation at the time I was upset with my father at the time you know because again the reason and this is what people don't understand I I try to get people to understand it's part of the reason why I didn't tell on Jeff is because I didn't want to get Jeff in trouble as a kid you know, I felt a connection with Jeff because mm-hmm. he, other than the sexual abuse, you know, he he seemed like a great guy. Yeah. And they used basically the affection uh, as a kind of like a uh, insurance policy that a child, because a child doesn't want to see Jeff. I, I didn't want to see Jeff dead. Or, right. I mean, now, fast forward to 2017, and 
you know, I look at uh, YouTube. They got 19 million uh, people watch Daddy Shoot Jeff, and I couldn't think of a, a better person that could happen to. So at the time I was upset, but now I'm like, you know, good, go, good for Daddy. Yeah, but it took time for you to get to that point. But did you ever oh, feel absolutely. like... I know you didn't. I know you didn't want Jeff to be dead, and and it's the same with me. Like with my abuser, I still had affection towards him. He was my stepdad. That you know, on certain days, he was a good dad. So you didn't want what? that to happen to him. But when it comes to like getting justice for what for the bad part for the monster in Jeff, did you feel like that was taken away from you, or did you not really worry about that? By the time I had process through um i didn't worry about that i mean like i said it's almost like a grieving process Mm. it's a healing process and i think it it can be accomplished um a lot of people who don't have the right support they never get that healing but so i never i never had that anger that you know i never got to confront jeff i mean i guess part of me is like you know what the good thing is i know jeff's never molesting another kid Mm. Mm -hmm. i was gonna ask that did do you know that he had no other victims? Oh, I know for a fact he had other victims. He he. Oh, that he did. Made me and another. He made me and another kid do things to each other. Okay. Yeah. But knowing that he would no longer, from that point forward, molest another child, brought you justice in some sense. Eventually. Yeah. Eventually. Well, what do you think? You know, when you talk about your healing process and having the support you needed, what was the maybe the the couple of things that really were keys to you, you know, being able to move forward and being able to talk about this confidently and, you know, having a healthy life. I think knowing before anything ever happened to me that there were people out there that would do things to kids and being able to identify that so I didn't have that internal blame, I think that that was one of the biggest things, mm-hmm. not to mention the public nature. Like, I never... They didn't not name the victim back in 1984. So, I mean, I'd be riding, think about this. You know how middle school kids are. I would be on the bus in middle school, and we had a radio, and it would be like, da, 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 in the news today, Gary Ploche is seeking a hearing uh, for the uh, molestation of his son, Jody. Mm. And, you know, everybody would look at me. But so I think having to deal with that then and not keeping it a secret. Um, I went on Geraldo one time, that first time I went on, okay, there was a guest. He was molested by, like, let's just say a Boy Scout leader. Well, his friend that he went to school with, they kind of grew apart. Well, fast forward, she's getting married, and she has a young son, and he finds out that it's the the child molester that molested him is marrying this woman, and he knew that she had a child, and he didn't say nothing. And then he molested the little boy. And so he has to live with that guilt. So I was lucky. I never had that. So I, I'm kind of thankful it was out in the public. Yeah, and for you to find your voice so early. You and I have joked about how <laughs> your abuser was killed, mine took his own life, and we're doing okay. <laughs> you know, like, do you feel like in some ways, and maybe I know, like, you know, we just kind of joke because... Um, <laughs> kind of how we deal with it. Mm. But do you think that not having them around, you know, do you feel like... And not that that's ever going to be a real thing, but, you know, if they're put in prison for life, does that bring more healing for a victim to not have to see your abuser? You know, I don't ever have to see my abuser. 
that one. Right. I'm not going to go to the, the Walmart and run into Jeff. Yeah. So I think that that definitely is because the first thing that I would think of is who is he molesting now? Mm-hmm. I've got a, a friend of mine. He calls me about every six months and uh, he was sexually abused when he was younger and he wants to confront the guy. Now he doesn't want to go kill him. He doesn't want to go hit him with a baseball bat. He just wants to ask him why he wants some information. And I told him I'll go with him. Mm. Um, so I, you yeah. know, so we all deal with it differently, and, and I, I do think that that is added comfort, knowing that I don't have to see him, mm. I'll never run into him at the store, and that he's not abusing anybody else. So I yeah. do think that that absolutely is an added comfort. Yeah, I do too. Well, and then what do you think about, for those who, their abusers still alive, they go to prison for 10, 20 years, then they get out, and now this victim a survivor is living with a new threat of having them what are your thoughts on you know rehabilitation for child sexual abusers do you think that's a real thing do you think that's possible i don't want to sound like a pedophile sympathizer i do not think it's possible okay Mm -hmm. the only thing you can do is see you can be a pedophile and not molest children okay Mm -hmm. if you're attracted to children what i would say is don't touch them it's against the law so if they have that attraction, you know, I, I, it, they really don't have any outlet, you know, because child porn is illegal, you know. But you, I, you're not going to change somebody's, you know, sexual orientation or their attraction. So the only thing you could do with rehab is say, okay, accept what you are and accept that it's illegal and don't touch children. But how often are they willing to go get help for themselves before something bad's happened? You know, I just think that's well, so far and few them, between. It's normal. That's their norm. They're like, oh, I'm not hurting a kid. So that's that's kind of the dilemma. So when a, a child molester or, or you know, a pedophile, someone who's attracted to children, you know, I mean, ignoring your sexual urges is kind of tough to do. Mm-hmm. So if they if they commit the crime, they they got to do the time. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds cliche, but well, I think that's just the truth. But sadly, they often don't get enough time, and that's my fear. Is then they get out, and we have these survivors who are now going through a lot of pain because they have fear of seeing this person again. This person's not healed. They're probably going to hurt somebody else again. I just, I feel like our system isn't really working. No, our system does not work well when it comes to sex offenders. And we're talking about children. I'm not even, I'm not even talking about, you know, the Stanford swimmer who, mm-hmm. you know, rapes an unconscious woman at a party and gets six months and committed down to three months and mm. because the judge doesn't want to ruin his life really right way to, way to stand up for a rapist good job judge <laughs> and that happens every day and in, in, in the system what in your opinion will it take to stop sexual abuse from being as rampant as it is you think it's going to be that justice system changing and giving abusers the time that they deserve no more I think- advocacy no, I think parents need to become as paranoid as I am, and that'll stop it. Well, not stop it. I mean, that will reduce it, I believe, because if, if parents – it's sad because I tell parents, if someone wants to spend more time with your kid than you do, that should raise a red flag, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. I'm single with no kids. I don't volunteer my – my little brother lives directly across the street, Okay. I do not volunteer to take his kids to uh, dance practice, soccer practice, um, swimming practice. Now, they might call me up and say, hey, look, are you going to be around this evening? Can you go get Charles from swim practice? And I'll say, okay, if I'm available. You know, my older brother is the same thing. Hey, look, can you 
bring my kid to soccer practice. Or uh, the other day he called me, can you come pick Bentley up? Because we're going out of town and, and my mom's going to watch him for the weekend. Mm-hmm. I'll go do that. Yeah. But I don't go, hey, uh, win soccer practice. Come on, Charles. I'll bring you. Nah. Yeah. See, you need to, you need to be. Parents need to be paranoid like that. Parents, when someone's like, hey, I'll bring Charles to soccer practice, they think, oh, great, I don't have to do that. That frees up 20 minutes of my time. No. Be very careful who your kids are with. And ask questions, right? And definitely ask questions and talk to your kids. I mean, I'm not saying don't teach them uh, or don't educate them on safe and healthy healthy touching. I I absolutely would. You can start reading books when they're, you know, pre-K. That mm-hmm. way it doesn't seem odd to them. I mean, make it part of, I mean, you teach them stop, drop, and roll. Why not teach them no, go, and tell? Right. Um, but I wouldn't put that emphasis on the kid, emphasis on the kids, that you need to tell mom and daddy if anyone ever touches you. No, mom and daddy, you need to keep your kid away from people who might touch them. Now, <laughs> I understand. It could, it's family members. It's coaches. It's clergy. It's, you know, scout leaders. It's people who put themselves in a position to be around children because they've got to be around children to have that access. Yeah. So those are the people you They're need to tricky. be aware of. Yeah, they're tricky, but you're right. We have to be on guard all the time, even if it's your best friend, even if it's your brother. Yep, I know that. <laughs> it's... I'm not. I'm not. I'm not accusing my brothers, but I'm just saying. I mean, I, I don't. I don't trust anybody. Yeah. And is that a, is that a horrible way to live? Probably. So there you go. If people ask me how it affected me negatively as an adult, I don't trust people. I just don't. Yeah. Well, that's the same for me. That's always been my answer. You know, I. I think trust will be the biggest thing that I'll struggle with for the rest of my life. And is it something that I try to get through? Yeah, definitely. But it's also something that I'm just going to be okay with because I know what happened to me. And in some ways, it's made me smarter. Absolutely. Well, this is good. You're so smart. Well, I can't wait <laughs> to read your book. So if there's one main like message from when you speak and when your book comes out, I mean, what is like the biggest message you want to give? Is it to survivors or is it to caretakers? When I put my speech together, I kind of tell it from the standpoint of the phases of sexual abuse. So I'm educating those who are hearing me. Mm-hmm. But also it is aimed at survivors. Because, well, and it's aimed for healthcare workers. Because my main message, and I told ESPN when they came down to do the E60, I said, this has to be in there. Is that with the proper support, you can be okay. Most people... And in the letter that I was reading on Facebook this morning was saying that, oh, all the people who were victimized sexually as a young child were scarred for life, and, you know, you triggered them and traumatized them. And, that, and that's what made me go see that, because I don't, I don't feel that way. Yeah. I, I feel that you can be okay. Yeah. I'm not scarred for life. I, mm-hmm. didn't ha- I didn't even have a bad childhood. I had a screwed up year, yeah. but my childhood was great. Oh, so I that, think that's, that's good. My yeah, that you can move on with the right support. And you didn't even go through professional counseling except for right away when you were 10. Right. So what did that look like? What did your support look like? Your mom? It was, it was mainly my mom. Yeah. I mean, because I was able to open up and talk to her. I mean, because mm-hmm. uh, she knew she knew I wasn't lying. She knew Jeff was basically evil to the core. And so she, you know, think about this stuff, okay? Let's say... I sit down and I don't go to the hospital, but let's say, or let's use your situation. Okay. So let's say it's the stepfather molesting the stepdaughter. Mm-hmm. Let's say you go to your mother. Okay. Your mother, your blood. And you say, he's molesting me. Your husband is molesting me. And she said, you're a little liar. You've always been a liar. You're going to live with your daddy. I think you'd have been affected a little differently. That's right. 
Yeah. So that's why I always qualify and say with the proper support. Yeah. If you, if you don't get the support, you know, I got a friend of mine that that happened to, that exact scenario happened to. And I mean, she's had mental health problems as an adult and throughout her teenage years. And she still struggles with it today because she never had that proper support. So what was it that your mom was to you? She believed you. She didn't blame you. She listened to you. And what? she and she remained calm. That's another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I was surprised at how calm she was. I was like, wow, I thought she'd freak out. Well, one of the things that Mike Burnett told her, and I'm thankful that he paid attention during his training, was that he told her, you need to remain calm. Because if Jody sees that it, you're upset, he's not going to open up to you. Mm-hmm. And now, granted, she's one to slit her wrist when I walk out the room <laughs> because – you know, what she's hearing happen to her 10, 11-year-old kid mm-hmm. is just, you know, almost unbearable for a parent to listen to. But I never got that sense that she was upset. You know, I mean, I, I think she told me one night she was going to drive off a bridge, and she was squeezing the steering wheel so tight she couldn't get her rings off the next day because she had bent her rings. That's wow. how upset she was. Wow. But she didn't and show that, that when you were yeah, in those one-on-one that. conversations. Yeah. How about the guilt? A lot of people ask me, you know, did your mom feel a lot of guilt for not knowing, for not stopping it, you know, earlier? How about your mom? Absolutely. Yeah. Did she she talk to you about her guilt? I don't remember her talking to me about the guilt, like, Mm -hmm. in the process, like, you know, back when I was younger. I mean, it's it's now that I know she still feels guilty. Okay. But mostly she was just a safe place for you to talk when you needed to, and you knew that you could whenever you needed to. She was my counselor. Yeah, sure sounds like it. I mean, it just reminds me of my music teacher. You know, when I was younger, I didn't want to talk to the counselor, but I wanted to talk to somebody, and that's who she was to me, too. And my mom kind of did the same for me. You know, we just need those people in our lives. Unfortunately, so many abuse survivors don't have a mom like we had. Right. So I guess for us now, it's about equipping this generation, whether they were believed or whether they weren't, whether they were supported or whether they weren't, to be the parents of the next generation. If it does happen to their kids, hopefully not, but if it does, that they would be the parents that would respond the way that ours did. Well, and, and again, that, that, that remaining calm is so important because a lot of times, and, and Mike, I'm, I'm trying to quote him the best I could. I did a thing on CNN one time, kind of like an update on how I'm doing, and Mike Burnett said that, Sometimes the child doesn't realize that the action is wrong. And sometimes the, the action of the parent, their reaction, is more damaging to the child than the actual act itself. Yeah, I believe that. And yeah. I, I know someone close to me whose daughter, you know, blacked out drunk, got raped. And I know that this woman who had this daughter... I know that her reaction was more damaging on the daughter than the actual act itself because she didn't remember. Yeah. I tried, to, I tried to provide counseling, but this person wouldn't listen to my advice. And my advice was remain calm, get off social media, you know, delete uh, Facebook, delete Instagram. And, and she said, do you know how many pictures she has on Instagram? I said, I don't give a darn. I don't think I said darn, but. but <laughs> Probably not. I, but I told her, I said, if, if you want my advice on how you should handle this, this is what you do. And, I mean, you know, and that case, of course, the judge dismissed and said that she didn't want to ruin the young man's life. Where's the justice in that victim? There's mm-hmm. nothing. I mean, yeah. I don't, you know what? There was a sense of justice, and I'll tell you. That judge was up for reelection, and the person I'm talking about, 
the, the, the young girl, I think she was 14 or 15 at the time, she went out and told her story at, like, campaign events for the judge running against the judge that threw out the case, mm. and he ended up getting elected over her. So there was a sense of justice in that, that she was able to go talk about it and make a difference in getting that judge removed. Wow. So yeah. That, that was kind of cool. Well, and that just goes to show you, you know, we need to find our voice. And sometimes it doesn't happen in the way that we think it's going to happen as far as making a difference. But, you know, when it, we just have to raise our voices when we feel compelled. <laughs> and sometimes it, it really shows up. Well, Jody, I'm so incredibly proud of you. And I'm just so grateful that we're friends and we've been friends for so long and just how you're an advocate for victims is really empowering and encouraging to me. And so thank you so much. Oh, uh, well, I did want to say, like, it was just a chance encounter how we met. I used to talk to, I used to go to the health club and I would talk to the, the woman at the front desk <laughs> yeah. and she knew I worked at victim services and she knew I went out in the community and did, you know, sexual abuse prevention, rape prevention programs. And, Nicole just happened to get a job working at the health club. That's right. And so one day, she yeah, goes, in between oh. speaking engagements, I'm scanning uh, health club cards. <laughs> so yeah, and I, I see scanning health club cards. Well, she says, "Oh, have you met the new girl here? She she kind of does what you do. She speaks out and about sexual abuse." I was like, "No." She's oh, and you're gonna like her too. She's blonde hair, and she's so <laughs> oh. And so that's how we met. Yeah, that's so crazy. Well, I'm glad our friendship has continued, even though now you're back in Louisiana. Even, yeah, even though when you come to Baton Rouge, you don't let me know. What? <laughs> well, I kind you know of... All the, you know all the floods. I, you might Remember when you came a couple of years ago uh, to speak in Denham Springs? Yes. I mean, Denham Springs was hit really hard with the floods. So you might want to contact them people and see if they're, you know, how they came out. I should. You're right. <laughs> Maybe you can get another speaking engagement. Maybe. Well, every time I come down there, it's raining, so... All right. Oh, good. Well, I'm glad to see you're doing well. And and I will take it personal if you come to Baton Rouge and don't let me know. I know. We need to make it happen. Well, every time I come, I'm like, get off the plane, speak, get back. But one of these days, I'll have to make an extended trip. Yeah, stay an extra day. So you can cook me a small calf. <laughs> I will. That's, okay. what I, that's what you owe me. But All right. Well, congratulations on, on your podcast. Hey. I look forward to Coming back on whenever I get my book done. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Can't wait for that. All right. Well, thanks, Jody. Enjoy your drive. All right. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye. As Jody mentioned, it's up to parents to protect their children from perpetrators. At One Voice, we believe that education and empowerment is key to prevention. This month, we're partnering with Damsel and Defense to provide resources that will equip your family with tools to start critical conversations and raise your children's awareness without teaching them to be fearful of everyone around them. The Safe Hearts book series includes four storybooks appropriate to read with children of all ages, along with a proactive parent guide to help you navigate questions and continue these conversations in everyday life. The time to change these statistics begins now and in your home. Go to our Facebook page by searching for One Voice, spelled all together as one word, or link to our Facebook page from our website, IamOneVoice.org. And this is pretty cool. A portion from every purchase will be donated to our cause. Thanks to you. And be sure to tune in next time as we hear the story of another dear friend, Kendra, a survivor of child sexual abuse and sex trafficking.